Allah, holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Something to think about there in Hebrew twelve fourteen. But we got the holiness in us through Jesus Christ our Lord. I, I certainly anything in this flesh ain't holy. Amen. It's all because of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. We'll sing all four verses. I'm done. <laughs> got a lot of scripture in it it, it don't re, uh, refer to the scripture verse but looking unto Jesus or looking to Jesus Hebrew 12 1 and 2 and a few more but th that really stood out to me and looking to Jesus that's on the third verse that's what we need to do keep our eyes on the Lord the next in 693 693 a very comforting song Jesus the rock of ages, he's a shelter in the time of storm. Pastor mentioned that this morning in the Sunday school about the rock, or Rick, Stephen, maybe he's in your preaching message this morning, he's talking about the rock. But anyway, I heard it somewhere today. <laughs> Amen. A shelter in the time of storm, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Amen. Psalm 62, 7. We'll sing all four verses. 
J.L. was wondering uh, where he heard that today about the, the rock, and, and uh, if it was me, I don't remember, because to be honest with you, by Sunday evening, I don't remember what I said Sunday morning, so whatever I preach to you guys, I don't know, hopefully you remember it better than I do, but uh, hopefully it was memorable for something good, maybe not something bad, but anyways, tonight take your Bible, turn me to Psalm 21, Psalm 21 tonight, and as you turn there, we'll get ready to, uh, to pray, uh, but I want to encourage you tonight as we look uh, at Psalm 21, we're going to be looking at two, two aspects of this psalm, and that's uh, two things that are going to be seen in the life of the believer and in the life of David, uh, but uh, translate to our own life as well, both now and ultimately uh, as we look forward to uh, being with the Lord in eternity. And, and those two things are this, joy and judgment. Uh, joy and judgment. We're going to see David's joy, but we're also going to see the judgment that comes along from God's hand against his enemies. And ultimately what we find, and this is the strange paradox of, of being a, a believer, is this. We all joy when we have joy. We love joy, right? Uh, there's no one who would say that they don't like joy. But you say, what about judgment? Well, we're going to look in this passage specifically that there's going to be judgment from God against all those who rebelled against Him. And you know what it ultimately brings the believer? It brings about joy. 
Now, it sounds strange to our ears, maybe even to our hearts, to think that we could joy in the judgment of those who have rebelled against God. And yet what we find is that ultimately for the believer, we will have joy and eternity even after the terrible judgments that will take place because we will be with the Lord and the Lord's righteousness will have vindicated and delivered all foes under His feet and He will have crushed every enemy and He will have delivered His saints to be with Him forevermore. So I want to uh, pray, uh, read the psalm for us and then we'll pray and we'll jump into it. The king shall joy in thy strength, O Lord, and in thy salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. Thou hast given him his heart's desire and hast not withholden the request of his lips, Selah. For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness. Thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. He asketh life of thee, and thou gavest it uh, uh, him, even length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him. For thou hast made him most blessed forever. Thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. For the king trusteth in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. Thine hands shall find all out all thine enemies. Thy right hand shall find out all those that hate thee. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. What a description that is. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their fruit shall destroy uh, shalt thou destroy from the earth and their seed from among the children of men for they intended evil against thee they imagined a mischievous device which they are not able to perform therefore shalt thou make them turn their back when thou shalt make ready thine arrows upon thy strings against the face of them be thou exalted lord in thine own strength so will we sing and praise thy power let us pray lord we come to you this night we want to thank you for your word Grateful that we could sing the truths that we have tonight and throughout the day as well. And as we've gathered around your word, Lord, help us to be filled by it, be strengthened by it for the week ahead, that we would be used for your honor and for your glory. Help me now, O Lord, to preach and teach your word. God, that you would give me what I need, uh, Lord, not just to preach, but as well what I need from my own heart and as well for each soul that's in this place tonight. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, verse 1 through 7, we'll break this down. 1 through 7, we're going to look at the joy uh, that we see from the king and ultimately the joy that every believer can share and have. Notice we see the beginning here in verse number 1, the joy of the king is exclaimed toward God for his great deliverance. You ever just let out something to the Lord in joy and excitement? You know what the term hallelujah means? It means praise you the Lord. So when we sing this morning, you know, praise the Lord, right? It's the idea of hallelujah. It is what the English would be, of Hebrew would be hallelujah, praise the Lord. Uh, sometimes it's a good thing. Matter of fact, I would say, though, there, there's an extreme that gets out there that uh, likes to shout maybe too much in services, right? Just for the sake of shouting. But when we ought to shout, and we ought to shout, we ought to make a joyful noise to the Lord. We ought to praise Him. Uh, it should come from true joy. Now, joy comes from the Lord. Joy comes from who He is and what He has done and our reception of that by faith, trusting in the Lord. Now, with this, in verse number 1, we're going to see that the joy of the king is seen not in his own strength, but in the strength that God has provided, not only to the king, but for the king. Notice, verse number one, the king shall joy in thy strength, O Lord, and in thy salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. You ever watched uh, those uh, world's strongest man competitions, right? No one? Okay, well, I used to watch them all the time. You get these big dudes, about six foot six, about 400 pounds, and they're lifting and throwing stuff everywhere. And then you get into some of the, the um, uh, like, uh, uh, Mr. Universe stuff, like old Arnold used to do, right? And they're doing all the muscles. And you ever notice what they do when they have their stuff, they go like this, and they stare in the mirror, right? You ever go to the gym, 
and you see that guy who's there in the mirror and he's looking at his muscles, right? He's looking at his muscles more than he is actually lifting weights or exercising or working out, right? Now, why do they do that? They're admiring their own strength, admiring themselves. Well, what does David do here? Does he look and go, David, you're looking pretty buff today, right? No, no, he doesn't do that at all. Matter of fact, well, here's what he does. He says that the king, referring to himself, shall joy in thy strength, O Lord. So he's speaking to the Lord, and he says, I'm going to have joy in your strength because of your strength. Why? Because God ultimately gave David strength to do all that he has done. It is God who gave David the strength to have the victory that he's had thus far in his life in rule. It is ultimately God's strength that becomes the strength of the believer. Uh, as has been said throughout the day, and as we know, according to the Bible, there is no strength in ourselves or in our flesh. So any strength that we have comes from the Lord. Therefore, it should bring us joy. If for any other reason than this, it is this. Why should we take joy in the strength of the Lord? Because God is strong. He never runs out of strength. And He always provides strength. The very strength that we have in our bones and in our body to breathe, to have our hearts pump and beat as they are right now, to have our senses about us, to have our thoughts, to have the energy and strength to come back on a Sunday evening. Right? This is the strength of the Lord, therefore we should have joy. But we also see here that David knows that it is God's strength alone that has delivered them and given them salvation, the victory here. He says, the, strength, the king shall join the strength, O Lord, and in thy salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. And notice, we find this uh, great exclamation about how thankful he is to the Lord, not just for strength, but for salvation. Ultimately, uh, salvation is of God's strength and not man's. Now, this is not just in some sort of reference to a, a spiritual salvation of being saved from our sins and the penalty of sins, but rather this, the idea of salvation here is used in a broader sense. Uh, think about it this way. Um, if a fireman rescued a family from a burning home, what would he be called? Maybe a hero? Perhaps even a savior. Why? Because he did an act of saving someone from near death or certain death. So we find that the idea is being rescued um, is the idea of salvation here. And so they have been rescued by the strength and salvation of God. And so David says, how greatly shall he rejoice? He's going to rejoice because of the Lord. You back up into Psalm 20 and we read verse 5 through 7. Uh, the people say, We will rejoice in thy salvation, and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from the, his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Here what we find in Psalm 21, just the very beginning opening verse is David leaning onto what he has piggybacked off of here now in Psalm 20, which is this. We're going to trust in the strength and the might and the name of the Lord because ultimately in the name of the Lord is his strength. Ultimately, the name of the Lord displays all of his characters, all of his attributes, all that God is, all that God is like, all that God does is found in his name. So therefore here, David rightly goes, I'm going to have joy in the strength of the Lord. I'm going to have uh, rejoicing uh, greatly over the salvation that he has brought. But notice about both of these things. With joy, there's two things I want you to get tonight about joy. First of all, there's a decision of joy. You have to decide to be joyful. Now that sounds strange, because here's what we often think. We think that both happiness and joy 
are either one and the same, right? We don't separate them quite like we ought to. Uh, but we also as well do, do this mistake where we think that we only have joy when something outwardly happens to us, right? Something happens, uh, you hit the lotto, right? No, I'm just kidding, right? You have something exciting, right? Birth of a new grandchild, right? There's joy, there's this outward thing that produces joy. But notice, is the joy coming because a grandbaby was born or because of the love that you have for that grandbaby, right? Uh, so we find that joy comes from an inward knowledge and an inward work of God, ultimately. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So we find that joy is not necessarily based upon some sort of outward circumstance. Now, nevertheless, every believer tonight, we have got the joy available to the Lord, or from the Lord available to us. But will we be joyful or not? Now, there's plenty of folks, and you could probably think of people right now who are saved believers, right? They are saved, sealed, going to the same heaven that you and I are going, but they walk around like this, right? They're sad about everything. They're downhearted. They're downcast. Uh, they, they just absolutely struggle all the time. They seem to not be able to find joy. Now, here's what happens. We have ultimately, all of us, go into different times of our life that way, right? There's some times where we're just melancholy. There's some times in our life where things are sad. There's some sorrows that are deep in our life. And yet what we find is that joy is able to rise above and to even lift us up and carry us and fly us high above all the circumstances of life. And ultimately, though, what we find is that it is rooted in a decision to either be joyful or to not be joyful. Now, David has chosen to be joyful in the name of the Lord. David has chosen, made the decision to be joyful, especially regarding the victory that God has given, the salvation that God has given. But then we also find that the decision of joy is inward, right? But then we also find this about joy, is that there is also a direction of joy. Joy is directed somewhere. Now, true joy is directed where? Not inward, but rather upward. It goes unto the Lord. Joy drives us closer to Christ. Joy drives us nearer to the heart of who God is. Joy drives us near to the cross so that we might abide with the Lord, so that we might rest in His work and in His promise and in His presence that has been given to us. So the salvation that has been given to David and God's people by the grace of God with the evidence of His strength being displayed is what we find here. God has shown forth His strength. He has shown His might. He has shown His power. Therefore, David and the people, and ultimately every believer tonight, is left with a decision of will we have joy or will we not have joy? Will we live in joy or will we not live in joy? He chooses joy. He's, direct, he's directed upward to praise the Lord. And what we find is this tonight. There is no strength or salvation outside of God's grace, but God's strength and salvation both produce joy and rejoicing in the believer. Now, you don't have to be a strong believer to have joy. As a matter of fact, I believe you just have to be a believer to have joy. The world doesn't know what true joy is. They might experience happiness. They experience some good times. They experience emotional highs. But truly only the believer, the believer in Christ, the follower of Christ, knows what true joy is. Joy is experienced and seen in the middle of even deep sorrows and dark valleys. So what we find is this joy is given truly to the believer. It is God's grace that supplies strength. It is God's grace that supplies salvation. It is God's grace that ultimately supplies our joy. It is given, and we now live by faith out of it. It is the Lord who supplies both by His grace and for our good. 
Ultimately, God's grace is always working for our good. We don't always see the good in the middle of those things. We find that every act of God, every motivation of God is by His grace, and it is for the good of His believers, and it leads to us to be like David, to rejoice greatly in the salvation and the strength of the Lord. So tonight, before we even go any further, the real message is this. Will we be willing tonight, regardless of circumstance and situation, to choose joy and to rejoice in the strength and salvation that God has given? Now, this is a decision that each one of us must make, but I believe this is not a one-time decision either. This is a daily decision. This is a moment-by-moment decision. Will I rejoice and have joy in the Lord? You know, I'm having a tough day today. I got, uh, I got this problem going on. I got that problem going on, right? I got this stress going on. You know, things just haven't gone good. I burnt my toast this morning, right? Then I dropped my toast this morning. Then I poured my coffee. I burnt the coffee and I spilled the coffee. Everything's going bad. But you know what? We can still yet rejoice and have joy because the Lord gives us strength to make burnt toast. The Lord gives us strength to make burnt coffee. The Lord gives us salvation because He allows us to pour out that coffee and make a new pot and start over, right? So we see all that God has given. So there is joy and rejoicing to be had. Now, then in verse 2 through 7, we see the reasons for rejoicing in the Lord's deliverance that are given that go beyond the strength and salvation of the Lord. This here, verse 2 through 7, is essentially going to give the uh, details of what God's strength and salvation look like. God's strength and salvation are sort of the broad, uh, broad things here that David is rejoicing and having joy in the Lord for. But now he's going to get into the details of God's strength and salvation on behalf of his people here in verses 2 through 7. He says, Thou hast given him his heart's desire and hast not withholding the request of his lips. Selah. Selah, of course, teaching us to go back and to meditate, to think, to dwell upon what we have just read. And what you just read is this The king shall joy in the strength, O Lord, and thy strength, O Lord, and in thy salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice. Thou hast given him his heart's desire and hast not withholding the request of of his lips. Were you ever given a gift that you really wanted? Uh, you wanted, I mean, you wanted it so bad. You wanted it more than anything. You might have been a little kid. Uh, you might have been an adult for all, that ma- for all that matters. But when you got that gift, oh, whoever gave that to you, you remember that time? Of just, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is the greatest, right? Let's think about this even more so than that. We think as we see this gift, this heart's desire being given to us, let me ask you this. How do you feel when God answers prayer? Does it cause us to rejoice? Does it cause us to joy? It ought to. That ought to be the first thing that happens when we realize answer to prayer. But what often happens is the moment we get answer to prayer, we either one, we tend to not see it because it didn't get answered how we wanted it to, or we didn't get it answered how we thought it should get answered or would get answered. But nevertheless, here's what we find. David clearly had been asking God for specific things. God answered the prayer of David and the people for deliverance here in verse 2. He says, I'm going to have joy and rejoicing because you've given the king his heart's desire and have not withholding the request of his lips. There's nothing quite like answered prayer, isn't there? There's nothing quite like having prayer answered. And now, when we have our prayers answered, and here's the issue, is that we often think that we have more prayers prayed than we do have prayers answered. Truthfully, every prayer that we ever pray either has been answered or will be answered. What we find is that we waste no breath when we speak to God. Every breath breathed out to the Lord is breathed out uh, for, for something far greater than what we often can imagine. And we find that God works through prayer, desires our prayer. 
Not that he needs our prayer, but rather we need prayer. And now with this, uh, one commentator writes about this uh, verse. He says, he had counseled, speaking of David, he had counseled in his heart, formed his plans, and had spoken about the execution of his plans before the Lord. Now the king witnesses that the Lord had blessed his thoughts and spoken requests. The king's ways were aligned with God's plans. Therefore, the king was successful. Notice this, our success is not based on what we think success is, but rather success is uh, having our will bent and submitted to the will of God. Success is when our will conforms to His will. That's what faithfulness looks like. That's what spiritual success looks like. That's what answer to prayer looks like. Answer to prayer is not God changing His will to meet our will, but rather the Lord changing our will to meet His will. Us surrendering our will to His will. And what we find is that God works and through this and His answering of prayer is that we see His work, we see His hand upon our life, we begin to see His plan come forth, we begin to see His tender care for each one of our hearts, and that He is greatly concerned for us. Now this answer to prayer is encouraging to David. It continues to cause him to rejoice and to have joy. And we find that this has happened all throughout the Bible with all of God's people that have answered to prayer. Sometimes, here's what happens to us. We begin, though, if we have answered a prayer, that we start to think that now we're, we're really praying good now, right? We're on a roll. Now we start thinking that answer to prayer was based upon us and not based upon God's grace. We must always remember that God answers prayer according to His will and His timing and according to His very grace. But it should not keep us, one, from praying, but it should always drive us to more prayer. Answer to prayer should not keep us from praying, but rather drive us to pray more. It should show us the great need and dependence that we have upon God for all things, to pray without ceasing, to, and everything by prayer right and supplication. Guzik writes, this speaks to the special place answered prayer has in the life of the believer. Every Christian should know the thrill of frequent, wonderful answers to prayer. When a Christian does not enjoy the blessings of answered prayer, it is because he is prayerless, he is praying wrongly, or he has some hindrance in prayer. Now, let's be honest tonight. There's sometimes we pray and we feel like our prayer hits the ceiling and bounces right back. There's sometimes we feel like we can't even pray and we don't even know what to pray, but praise the Lord that we always have the, the best thing perhaps about our prayer life is this. Christ is always interceding on our behalf at the right hand of the Father, and we have the Holy Spirit of God who always and uh, speaks on behalf of, of us, groanings of which cannot be uttered because we don't even know how to pray sometimes. And notice this, that even our prayer life is dependent upon the Lord. You ever notice that? When we pray in the flesh, you know how quickly you get your mind to wander. When we pray in the flesh, the distractions come and we can't combat them. But yet what we find is that the Holy Spirit always directs us in prayer. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers us to pray. It is the Holy Spirit that enables us to pray and, and gives us a heart's desire to pray and shows us our great need of the Lord for every need that we have in our life. And so what we find is that every Christian, every believer should be experiencing the blessing of answered prayer. And when we're not, here's what, here's what happens. First of all, we've got to be careful. When we're not answer, having that prayer answered, right, or answers to prayer, we've got to back up for a minute. We've got to ask, why is this prayer not being answered like I thought it should? These are the times and the moments where I believe that the Lord is asking us to search our own heart and to see if there be any wicked way in us. To have the Lord try our heart. To have the Lord open our heart. To see, is there something in my life right now that is keeping 
my prayer from being answered. Now, I believe this. The Lord is not out there deliberately trying to withhold answers to prayer, but rather, here's what happens, is that we often restrict our answers to prayer because we have unconfessed sin, sin that is left unrepented of. Uh, We often uh, pray according to our will and not His will. We pray, Lord, let my will be done, right? And not Thy be done. We don't say that last part, but we really want our will to be done. Let's be honest, when we pray for things, it's because we want them answered. It's because we want them done a certain way. It's because we're telling God a, a need or a desire of our heart. And here David expresses that the Lord gave him his heart's desire. It seems sometimes for our own life that that doesn't happen all too often. But I believe the reason is this. If we boil this down, if we boil this, this uh, phrase, this, this verse down, David's heart's desire was answered by God because David's heart's desire was for God. When our heart's desire is to know the Lord, I believe that's when we begin to find answers to prayer. I believe perhaps the key to answered prayer is having every prayer being directed to know Christ more, to know His presence, to trust Him, to walk with Him, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. As our heart's desire becomes God Himself, I believe that this is where we begin to find answers to prayer. So if we want answers to prayer tonight, which all of us tonight would say, I want an answer to prayer, or I need answers to prayer, or I desire future answers to prayer, then let tonight, before we go any further, before we even get to the very end, that our hearts would be directed to have a desire for the Lord Himself. When we desire God in our heart, I believe that's where we'll begin to see answers to prayer. Now, verse 3, we then see that God's presence is the root of David's deliverance here. He says, For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness, thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. How many of you have ever read that phrase, for thou preventest him with the blessing of goodness? And wonder, what does preventest here mean? When we think of preventing something, we think of keeping back from something, don't we, right? Uh, We think about uh, in, in football, the offensive lineman is preventing the defense from getting the quarterback or the running back, right? That's the, that's the idea. Now, what is the idea here? Sorensen writes, the word translated as preventist has the idea of preceding or going before. Now, that changes how we read that, doesn't it? When we understand that it's going before, so it's the idea, for thou goest before, or thou precedest him with the blessing of goodness. Thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. Sorensen continues, and he says, David acknowledged how the Lord had been his vanguard. He, he, had, excuse me, he had gone before him and cleared the way. <coughs> In so doing, God had prepared the way for him with the blessings of goodness. Moreover, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Moreover, David hearkened back to the day when he was crowned as king over Israel. And the day is coming when the king of kings will receive a crown of pure gold as he assumes rule of the entire earth. David knew the rule of just one area, one land, one people. What we find is that Christ will be ruler over all and that His crown will be much larger in the sense of authority and power and might and strength than any other king that has ever ruled. Now, when we see God's presence going before David, we find that God's presence is the blessing of goodness and that it is God's presence that ultimately delivers. We remember several times of this in Old Testament history. We think specifically of uh, the time in Old Testament Israel. What happened when they were leaving Egypt? Who went before them? Not Moses, but God did. 
God went before them during the day as a cloud. And then not only that, but at night, He went before them as a pillar of fire. But what happened as well is God not only went before the people, but He abode with the people. So here's what we have to understand tonight, dear believer. God is already before you. He goes before you. He sets the way and makes the way before you. Now, I believe this, that the Lord is always putting out the right path for our steps. Would you agree? The Lord, the Lord orders our steps. He desires our steps to be right and, and to follow Him. But I believe as well on the other side of that, everywhere that God is laying out the road of our life and the way in which we should go. And it's a narrow way, isn't it? It's a very narrow way. It's a way of truth. It's a way of righteousness. It's a way of justice. It's a way of faith. I find this, that on the other side of that road, just off to the gutter, the devil is putting a much bigger, broader road, isn't he? And now we have the choice of which one to go on because it seems to be at times much easier to go on the broad way. It seems much easier to go on this path instead of the narrow one. But what we find is that the Lord is going before us, preparing the way, preparing your life before you. You ever wondered what would have happened in your life had the Lord not gone before you? You ever look back on the years of life and see how God had gone before and prepared you and prepared things in your life to bring you to where you are today? To, so that you would be here on a Sunday evening, reading the Bible, singing praises, fellowshiping with the saints of God. Some of us were, were uh, the worst and vilest of, of sinners. What we find is that God redeemed us and He prepared us all the way through to bring us to where we are today. Furthermore, we find that it is God's presence that David desires. It is God's presence that is ultimately the crown of pure gold upon his head. And so David here reminisces and remembers back to the day of his coronation, if you will, of, of becoming the king rightfully so, as God had ordained him. We see the blessing of what that is. That God had promised to be with David. As long as David trusted in him, walked with him, and David ultimately, even with his sin, repented and was still yet a man after God's own heart. Then in verse 4, David continues, he says, He asked life of thee, and thou gavest it him, even length of days forever and ever. Yes, you ever ask the Lord for life? Lord, help me just to live. Lord, perhaps give me another day. Lord, give me the rest of the day or give me strength for the rest of the day, what have you. And none of us know that days, the hours of which our life will come to a close. And I believe that's probably a good thing that we don't know. If we had this hourglass of time and we were constantly every day watching the sand slip, I believe we would be more focused on watching the sand slip through than we would going and living for the glory of God. Now with this here, David, <clears throat> he had asked for life. God gave it. The idea here is that this gift of life is not merely an everlasting life, an eternal life, but even just the temporary life of salvation from his enemies. Even length of days forever and ever. Now there were many times where David could have lost his life. Remember, David was a military man. And even before he was a military man, when he was a young boy, what was he doing? He was fighting off lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. Then the next thing that he fights after that is this great big old giant named, named Goliath. And what did the Lord do? He preserved him over and over and over again. There were countless times where David's life could have been destroyed utterly from people within his own family and from those who hated him outside of his family and those who came against him militarily and other nations as well. What we find is that God preserved his life. God gave him a length of days. And ultimately, he says, the length of days forever and ever. Do you all know how long forever and ever is? Well, it's what happily ever after is, right? Forever and ever, right? It is this e idea of eternal, everlasting, 
Here's what we see is Kidner writes, while the gift of life forever and ever might have been implied to an Old Testament reader, either a hyperbole like Daniel 2.4 or an allusion to endless dynasty promised to David in 2 Samuel where God said, your line is going to go forever and forever. The New Testament has filled the picture firmly with the figure of the ultimate king. The Messiah for whom the whole stanza is true without exaggeration. In Him, the glory, splendor, and majesty of verse 5 reveal their full range of depth and height, as does the joy of thy presence. Here's what we find is that the life of the believer, the life of David, is an everlasting reality both now and forever. And ultimately, that life is found in Christ. Ultimately, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I lay down my life and I take it up again. And that uh, no man has eternal life without him, that he is the giver of eternal life. He is the sustainer of eternal life and that he came to give life more abundantly. What is that idea of abundant? It is not this world uh, idea of worldly possessions, but rather a life of abundance. It is a, that joy and rejoicing that David speaks of in verse one uh, in the midst of all circumstances. It is this continual knowledge of Christ and this everlasting well of life, uh, of living water, if you will, that springs up from within, from his word, from our very heart, from the very Holy Spirit that now indwells us and points us to the word, that points us to Christ. Here's what we find is that everlasting life, it is both now and forever. So here's the thing tonight, you too and I too can say that we will have a length of days forever and ever. Now this doesn't mean that you will live on earth forever and forever. You and I are closer to death than we ever have been. We're one day closer to the Lord's return and we're one day closer to death than we've ever been. Nevertheless, what we know is this. Our bodies will one day die. That's why we need glorified bodies. That's why we need to put off corruption and put on incorruption and take off mortality and put on immortality. But notice that for the believer to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, our physical death is just the beginning of our true life. Our death is just the beginning of everlasting life, the experience of it. But here's the thing is that believers are promised this, not just in the future, but it is a present reality that we should live out of now. It is like, like uh, Brother Stephen talked about this morning, knowing who you are and, and whose you are and, and knowing what is to come, right? And, and this assures the believer. This gives strength to the believer. This shows us the joy and the strength that we have. This shows the everlasting life that we have, not both as a promise uh, for, for the future of heaven, but now for the believer. This is our strength. This is our reality. He goes on in verses 5-6, through six, David ascribes all of his blessings through being delivered by God's hands. He says, His glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him, for thou hast made him most blessed forever. Thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. Now David ultimately would be blessed forever. You want to know why? Because it's going to be through David's lineage that Christ, the true King, the true Messiah, will come about. So ultimately, David's line is truly blessed forever because God had covenant with him and told him these things. And ultimately, Jesus is the one who gives and is that blessing uh, forever and forever. Now notice some of these phrases. Here's what we see. that God has blessed him greatly in salvation. Honor and majesty has been given to David. Not because he's earned it, but because God's grace has provided it. We see then that he's made him blessed forever. And He's made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. You ever been made glad because someone else is glad? Well, let me put it another way. 
You ever been happy because somebody else is happy? Right? Someone has a good day or tell you something uh, good, that, uh, how the Lord blessed them or answered prayer, and you're like, oh, well, that's wonderful, right? And we say those phrases and we ought to mean them. We shouldn't be lying about those things. Something good shouldn't happen to somebody. And we go, oh, that's real great, right? Notice the difference. You can say, that's great. And then you can say, that's great, right? See the difference. Now, we should be happy for someone. We should have that joy for someone. And here's what we find is based upon this countenance, and what we find is that David says that the countenance of the Lord towards David is good, that it causes his heart to be exceedingly glad. But notice this. If the countenance of the Lord, or let's say it this way, if the Lord turns his face away from you, or if the Lord's hand comes from off of you, that's a sad day, isn't it? It's a painful day. David knew that experience, didn't he? This is why many of David's psalms, you ever notice David's psalms? It's this. One psalm, Lord, you're great. This is awesome. Life is fantastic. I'm going to go to heaven. You've delivered me and saved me. And then it seems like the next psalm he's going, God, did you forget me? Even asking questions, Lord, have you forgotten me? Why are you against me? Why do you turn your face to me? Why is your hand off of me? That's the life of the believer, isn't it? There's some days we feel as if God has forsaken us, forgotten us altogether. And then there's other days where we're going, man, he's right here and it don't get much gooder than this. David knew what this looked like. David knew these things. Every believer does. Swanson writes, though God certainly had blessed David and given him gladness, this foreshadows very well, may extend to our Lord as he rules someday from Jerusalem over all the earth. Indeed, he alone will be most blessed forever. Jesus Christ, His name, His glory is blessed forever and forever and forever. And when we make it to forever, we've got forever more to go. The king's joy turns into continued faithful confidence in the Lord. Verse number 7 says, For the king trusteth in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. So, here's once more this decision and direction of joy. That he trusts in the Lord is a decision, this is a direction. It's a decision inwardly. It is a directing uh, by faith upward to the Lord. And he trusts in the Lord. He's faithful to the Lord. He's putting his faith in the Lord. He, he is believing God's promises. He's believing in the work of God. And he says, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. David does not say, I'm not going to be moved because I have a strong military. David does not say, I'm going to be moved because I'm strong or wise in counsel. David does not say, I'm not going to be moved because I'm stubborn enough to not be moved. David says, I won't be moved because of the mercy of God. Even though David knows that he is God's anointed and chosen king and has been in covenant with the Lord himself, David realizes that all of his life, from the bottom of his feet to the crown of gold upon his head, is by the mercy of God. So tonight, for every one of us, may we have the same attitude as David here and see that everything in our life, from our worn out shoes to our worn out clothes to the gray hair or the fallen out hair, that God has been merciful to us. That all things are by His mercy. And so David sees this. How much more should we see this? We find these two things in verse 1-7, through this decision of faith, joy and trust. Notice, the more that we trust God, the more that we have joy. And notice the more joy that we have in the Lord, regardless of circumstance, the more we learn to trust Him. And so the two go hand in hand with the believer's life and they should characterize the life of the believer. David's confidence is not within himself, but by trusting in the Lord, 
And this is never-ending mercy. Mercy not only delivers the believer, but preserves the believer. Ultimately, all of life, from start to finish and everything in between, is by God's grace and mercy. As we talked about, God's gracious hand giving what is undeserved and the empowerment and enablement to do His will, that's God's grace. But then as well, His mercy, a withholding of what is deserved, which is wrath and justice and judgment. And so what we find there in fulfillment of all these things about God, there in Christ, upon the cross, we find grace and mercy met together. We find truth and justice met together. We find that grace and mercy flows from Christ, flows in His very blood that cleanses us, us, that cleanses us and covers us from all iniquity. God's unending mercy makes God's man unmovable. And ultimately, here's what we must understand is that our life must be lived the same. That we understand that it's God's mercy that keeps us from being moved and downcast and destroyed and utterly forsaken. It is God's mercy that gives us what we need in the times that we need it most. And ultimately, the thing that we perhaps need the most is God's grace and mercy. In verse 8-13, to 13, and we'll wrap up, we see the judgment that God produces upon the rebellious people and His enemies. Verse 8-12, through 12, God will defeat and destroy every enemy while also defending His own that trust in Him by grace through faith. Ultimately, what we find is that the defense of His people and the destruction of those who are not His people go hand in hand like joy and trust. Where you find God defending and delivering His people, you also find the defeating of His enemies. We think about it this way. Where you find in the Old Testament God delivering Israel time and time again, well, He is, one, defending them. Two, He's also defending His own name and honor, which has been given to the people of Israel. But in the same sense of defending His people, He is also destroying enemies that have come against them. And not, specifically, not only specifically coming against them, but to go against God's people, to go against God's man, David here, is to go against the Lord. And so we find that David is trusting in Him, and we find this uh, declaration of God's judgment. And he says in verse 8, Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies. You ever spill something uh, and drop it on the floor and chips or crackers or candy, whatever it is, it goes everywhere. And now you're having to find every little piece and it seems like you have to find them for weeks and months on end because they get everywhere, whatever it is, right? You drop something on the ground, now you're, now you're having to find it. idea here is this. Much like you and I might get on hands and knees and searching out to find every little crumb, every little thing that we've just dropped here, idea is that the hand, His hand, God's hand, shall find out all His enemies. So though his enemies, and though God's enemies may run and flee, they cannot outrun the hand of the Lord. Though they might outrun the law of the land, they will never outrun the Lord's hand. God reaches down and He will destroy every enemy and will find them and search them out and pluck them up, if you will. He says, the right hand shall find out those that hate thee. Now, hate here is the understanding of hate, but as well and specifically in this context, that of those who are against. It reminds us back of Psalm number 2 and many other of the Psalms as well that have talked about the enemies that are against the Lord. Furthermore, 
we see in verse number 9, he says, Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. Now, you and I in our ovens, we don't have fire in our ovens, do we? Our ovens, you hit, hit bake, preheat, 350, you hit start, you wait a couple minutes, it goes beep, 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 right? Now it's at the right temperature, and if you're impatient like me, you've already stuck the stuff in there before it hits 350 anyways, right? Uh, so that throws off all sorts of things. I've burnt many a pizzas, including one today because of that. Now, <laughs> here's, here's what we see. When you look in that oven and you go to check on whatever you're baking or making in there, you don't see flames, do you? If you do, there's probably a problem in there, right? You probably need to get the fire extinguisher, unplug that sucker, call, call Richard Midkiff to come put it out, right? You're doing something. Their ovens at the time were all wood-fired. That's how they cooked for everything. They couldn't go to Lowe's and go get a GE or a Whirlpool and uh, get this nice flat-top stove or whatever, right? No, none of that. The idea is to all these flames of this oven. He says, I'm going to make them as a fiery oven. Now, the fiery ovens of the day, they got hot, hot. You're talking hundreds of degrees. You ever had a wood-fired pizza? Those things cook that quick because the heat just, whoosh, the fire, whoosh. So what we see here is God says that He's going to make them as a fiery oven out of His anger. When we think about an oven, even the illustration and illusion of what the fires of hell even sound like, God's anger is a serious thing. The author of Hebrews says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it is. But yet for the believer, there's nothing more resting than being in the hands of a loving God who is the living God. He then says, the Lord shall swallow uh, them up in His wrath. Here we find these beautiful illustrations of God's just judgment. The oven of fire swallowing up in his wrath. The idea, when you think of swallowing, you think, that gulp down, right? The idea, he's just going to gulp them down. They've got no chance. They've got no hope. He says, and the fire shall devour them. Now, this is a picture of the end times to some degree. When Christ returns, how's he coming? With eyes as a flame of fire. He's coming with fire and brimstone against his enemies, and specifically the whore of Babylon that will be destroyed that great harlot who is a spiritual harlot who has corrupted the world. And so we find that when He comes, He's coming with judgment and flames of fire. He said, giving the rainbow promise that He will not destroy the world by a worldwide flood again, by water. But He said, fire's coming next. Because fire is not just something that can destroy, but it purifies and cleanses. You ever notice that after a wildfire, how quickly things grow back and turn green? It's remarkable, isn't it? He says, then their fruit shall thou destroy from the earth and their seed from among the children of men. Every enemy. For they intended evil against thee. They imagined a mischievous device which they are not able to perform. Meaning they made all these plans against God. They made all plans, all kinds of plans against God's people, against God's man, against God's people throughout time and eternity. And they couldn't bring it to pass. Why? Because ultimately God defends His people. And God's mercy keeps His people from ever being moved. He says, Therefore shalt thou make them turn their back when thou shalt make ready thine arrows upon thy strings against the face of them. 
Here God is described as this warrior king who makes his bow ready, pulls out the arrows of his judgment. You ever seen a, a bow and arrow be, be shot, right? That it hooks on onto that string, bends the bow. It's the idea that it's about to come down upon them. So here he says, you've, put, you've made ready your arrows upon thy strings against the face of them. Have you ever wondered how long the Lord will let things get the way that they're getting? You ever wondered how much longer until God causes people out of here? I wondered all the time. How much longer? How much worse does it have to get? I want you to know that even in the middle of all this right now, God's arrow of justice and judgment is ready. He's simply waiting for the release. This is the urgency of why we must be giving the gospel, but it is also the urgency of why folks need to repent and believe the gospel because when that arrow is loosed, there is nothing and no one that can stop it or will stop it. David has seen personal victory. We see this illustration of a future judgment and rule of Christ and ultimately how He will put down every enemy. What we find is that judgment once more leads to joy for the believer in verse 13. What does it say? Be thou exalted, Lord, in thine own strength. So will we sing and praise thy power. Once more, that decision and direction of joy and strength and trust to the Lord's salvation, to the Lord's strength, to the Lord's power, to His might, to His very being. For the believer, the final judgment will bring about the fulfilling joy over the person and work and rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. God exalts Himself through the display of His own power and the people respond forever in continued praise and singing of God's infinite power from creation to consummation. There in Revelation, you see it early on in Revelation and at the very end of Revelation, what do you find? All of heaven's saints forever and forever singing praise to the Lamb for who He is and what He has done and for the deliverance that He has given to them by His blood. So tonight I want to encourage us this as we close out. While we don't like talking about the judgment of God, we ought to talk about and love talking about the joy and the strength and salvation that God gives. We ought to talk about even the fact that joy should come knowing that God gets the final and will have and already has the final victory and that all those who are in Christ already have that too in Him. It is a present reality both now and forever. So tonight, may we leave this place like David in this psalm where we choose and make the decision tonight to have a heart that is full of joy and rejoicing and that will sing in praise of the power and might and strength and salvation of the Lord our God. May we simply, as we see who He is and what He's done and all that He's done for us, exalt His name. Let us pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You for uh, Your Word. We are grateful that we can gather. We can look to it. We're grateful for the final and ultimate victory that we will have with You and in You and uh, because of You. And ultimately, it's for You, Lord, for Your honor and for Your glory. Help us to long and look forward to that day, but until that day, to choose like David, to live in joy, to live in rejoicing in Your salvation, Your strength that You've given to us. Help us, Lord, to be prayerful people, to have our wills submitted to Yours. And Lord, so that we would see and understand the answers to prayer that you give to us daily and moment by moment. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a blessed night. We'll